On November 3rd, the Royal BC Museum announced that it would begin closing sections of its existing galleries to embark on a process of community consultation to decolonize long-established exhibits, increase cultural safety in the museum, and ensure that the Provincial Museum is a welcoming place for everyone. This announcement has sparked new conversations exploring what it means to decolonize a museum and whether it is even possible to decolonize an institution that was born from the very process of colonization itself. To help contribute to this dialogue, the BC Museums Association is sharing the opening address from our 2021 virtual conference as an episode of our podcast. On October 7th, we were joined by Brandy McDonald from the Museum of Us for a talk entitled Pausing to Decolonize, Decolonizing Museum Policy and Practice. Brandy is the Senior Director of Decolonizing Initiatives at the Museum of Us, residing on the homeland of the Kumeyaay Nation in San Diego, California, USA. Brandy's work focuses on systemic change within museums through the implementation of anti-colonial and decolonial theory and practice, which centers truth-telling, accountability, and tangible change to redress colonial harm. Her 12 years working in nonprofits is based around capacity building through transformational policy, repatriation, and education. In her talk, Brandy discusses the work that Museum of Us has been doing to transform their organization, the decolonial work she is leading, and the guiding principles they have adopted. And a special thanks to the Cultural Resource Management Program at the University of Victoria for sponsoring this conference opening address. I am so grateful to be here with you all today and to be able to um, be in conversation and share the work with you all. Um, thank you to BCMA for having me and also for all of you for taking time out of your day to be with here with us today um, and to talk about decolonial praxis in museums. Um, I also recognize I get very excited and passionate about the work. Um, and so I will do my best to talk slowly so that uh, folks could keep up as well, especially our ASL interpreters. So thank you also for your hard work um, and for uh, being patient with me. I appreciate that. Uh, so, Haleto Chokma Sanofa Brandy McDonald Chakasasaya Chattasaya. Again, my name is Brandy McDonald. I'm uh, a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation uh, with ancestral ties to the Choctaw Nation. Uh, it's really an honor um, to be here uh, and also to represent my ancestors and Indigenous peoples in this way. Um, I'm going to share my screen, um, just a little overview of what we'll be talking about today. Um, really going to focus in on some of the work that we do at the Museum of Us in San Diego um, and talk a little bit about some of our guiding principles, show some of the tangible exhibit or examples of some of the work that we are doing on site, um, and then kind of just going in also into a reflection space. I'm going to share my screen with you all now. So this is the Museum of Us. Um, as you can see, it is a very ornate building. Uh, it is etched in Spanish colonial design. Um, the museum is a cultural anthropology museum. It was birthed from colonization, birthed from the colonial endeavor, it was made in 1915. It's a historic building. And it has nine colonizers etched into the skin. It is a monument to the colonizer. Um, if you can see, it's very Spanish and colonial. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the colonizers that are etched into the skin later on and how we address the conversation and make sure that we are countering um, the 100 plus years of when we've been celebrating these colonizers. Um, and then also recognizing the harm that um, the colonizers on our exoskeleton of our museum, in addition to the ways in which that um, internally within our collecting practices, 
um, our exhibit uh, that we are also working to address the colonial harm that we have perpetrated in the past and continue to perpetrate intentionally and unintentionally. Oops. So uh, the Museum of Us recognizes that we sit on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Kumeyaay Nation. The Kumeyaay peoples continue to maintain their um, connection to the land and are stewards of this land and have been stewards of the land for over a millennia. Uh, we have a very long history of not being uh, good to Kumeyaay peoples or indigenous peoples at all, much like museums is the field at large. Um, and the Kumeyaay peoples continue to work with us uh, for many different reasons, but really want to uplift their uh, generosity, their patience with us, and their ongoing support uh, and working to um, listen to us and um, engage in conversation, even though we have a very long history um, of not maintaining the trust and being uh, good relatives uh, to them. The footprint of the museum. So I feel like it's important when we talk about colonial legacy that we also talk about what is our museum. Um, so the museum of us holds 75,000 ethnographic objects. That's from around the world, y'all. Um, we have, I think, the only country that we believe that we may not have representation from is Iceland. Um, and so the collecting practices were very much centered on indigenous populations and gathering indigenous populations, belongings, items, cultural resources, and their bodies. Um, we have 7,500 ancestral human remains from also from around the world. We are actively working to repatriate cultural resources and repatriate ancestors. Um, and uh, we are also continuing to find cultural resources as ancestors as we are working um, to uh, complete our inventory uh, because the inventory for throughout the hundred years was not as um, complete as it should be, especially thinking about the differences of time and difference in collection practices. Um, so because of this footprint of our museum uh, and also the recognition and representation of indigenous bodies and cultural resources and the harm that we've done to indigenous peoples for 100 plus years, we our decolonizing initiatives and our guiding principles um, very much center uh, indigenous peoples, especially when we're talking about redressing colonial harm. So these are our decolonizing initiatives guiding principles. Uh, I'm not going to go over all of it. I know it's a lot of words, um, but it talks about truth telling and accountability. And so you're going to see physical manifestations in the tangible exhibit or examples later on of these guiding principles within the work that we have within our museum, especially truth telling and accountability. That's at the heart of our work and a heart of the decolonial work that we do. Also, the transfer of ownership when we look at policy. Um, thinking about how we're shifting, what does it look like to make sure that Black Indigenous community members are at all levels of uh, decision making and all levels of leadership and reciprocity. Decolonizing initiatives is not a revenue builder. That is a replication of colonial harms. So right, making sure that we're not expecting folks to continue to give and give and give to the museum, that we're also giving back uh, and not making money and profit off of colonization um, and also finding new ways to support white supremacy and colonization. So this is just a brief model, really thinking about the way we see um, that the work is more than just that really wonderful thing that Brandy does throughout the week, or really wonderful thing that cultural resources does that we get to write about in our grants. Um, but it is a complete systemic change of our entire organization. It's not just 
our cultural resources department or just the education department that replicates colonial harm. It's the entire organization. The or entire organization of museums were birthed from colonization. Uh, thinking about the cabinets of curiosity and taking these exotic items from indigenous communities, putting them on display, telling their own stories of them and not the indigenous people's stories. And so this model really shows that it's all of our departments, including human resources, which actively perpetuates colonial harm. And so what does it look like to dig into that? What does it look like to look at finance and operations in the circle of accountability, practice, policy, representation, repatriation, reciprocity to create systemic change. We also want to make sure that we recognize um, that um, it is systemic and so it is policy and practice that uh, it's not just one or the other, right? Because policy, I love me some policy, um, but policy is great and it's these really beautiful words but if it's not backed up with practice and a cultural shift of your organization, it's just these fancy words. It's a performative statement that lives on your shared drive, lives on your website, and nothing happens, right? Same thing with practice. If there's no policy to back it up or a structural change, then we could actively as an organization be doing it. But let's say I leave to go have a falcon farm one day, and then the next person comes in, there's nothing to hold them to that structure. Um, nothing to hold them accountable to what we have committed as an organization. And so we've seen that in our past. We've had really great public programs or curricula that's been built in, but as soon as that person leaves or maybe that department turns over, then it goes back to the colonial practice of these, these colonial constructs of best practices within museums. And so we really see these moving in tandem together, that it is a symbiotic relationship in order to continue this work that lives outside of just it being something that I do or someone else does, that it is the organization, it is a movement, and it's something that needs to live on 20 years from now because it's decolonizing is a practice. It is a process. Decolonization is a verb, right? It doesn't end at the end of your deliverable or the end of your physical year or your grant deliverable. Um, it is something that we are actively committed to and it's for the long run. It's also a linear, a non, excuse me, a non-linear process. Um, it is fluid and malleable and malleable and needs to adapt based to the wants and needs of communities. So I know that this is a really heavy slide, so I'm not expecting you all to read it all, um, but I wanted to show you in word form what that practice and policy looks like. And I've highlighted some of the areas that I'm going to be talking about. And if you have any questions, we can address them or just comment on them or discuss them later on. Um, but this is really when we talk about policy, we talk about practice and how they're working together. And really they're so they're connected. Um, but I wanted to show you kind of the extent of some of the pieces that we have that are going that I'm not going to be showing you today. A lot of folks ask, How'd you get here? <laughs> like, what is the pathway of getting here? Um, and so this is where we have this visual. And it's really, it's like a river, y'all. Um, it's not a straight line um, and it's still continuing. And so we are here today. I am here today because of all of the emotional and physical labor and time and sacrifices of indigenous peoples who came before me and even today. Um, and so that really, those folks, um, indigenous and also some non-indigenous peoples pushing museums and pushing our museum, the Museum of Us to change, is how the museum was then forced to look internally, to think about and think critically about 
the colonial harm that it's done to people. Um, and it also honored and listened indigenous people's voices and their wants and needs. And then also listened to scholars like Amy Lone Tree is one of the foundations for our work. Um, and her book, her seminal book, Decolonizing Museums is where our guiding principles are really built from. Um, and then also looking at other um, scholars throughout the field and how they can connect to museums. And then something really important about this space is action. You see action points, right? You have action points where our first piece was changing words. Words have power, words hurt, words replicate colonial harm every day. And so we used to call ancestors, the ancestors, the ancestral human remains specimens. The department was collections. And so shifting that to ancestors, shifting that to ancestral human remains, shifting that to cultural resources, right? That language, um, our department area where the cultural resources and the belongings were living um, and being stewarded were called labs. Um, and now they're storage rooms. They're really storage rooms. They're spaces where they can be cared for until they go home. Or if the community wants us to keep them, then they're living there until either they go on display or however the community has asked us to care for them. You can also see further down kind of the process, um, thinking about policy, working with communities. We also built a decolonizing initiative working group that you see right here. And that working group was a collaborative group of staff members, board members to get board buy-in um, and also community members to create policies and structures um, so that way we're moving together. So we're finding these entry points where folks are at different points in their journey and we're growing in that same space and then moving forward and building trust at the same time. And all of that leads to more action. Action led by indigenous communities, led by the policies, led by the practices. And then that's kind of where we are today, right? We're still continuing those actions. So I'm just going to touch briefly on a policy. I know that y'all don't, I don't, uh, I think I had mentioned earlier in terms of some of our policies and the greatness of that. I love policies, but I also love practice. Um, we have a federal policy in the US, which I don't believe is in Canada, but it's called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It is a federally mandated policy that was made in 1990. Um, and uh, it's wonderful. And it's also struggles quite a bit, right? It has these pieces that really creates leverage points and entry points for indigenous populations to get their cultural resources back. And uh, it also has these huge gaps and these colonial systems built in where it caters to some of the museum's wants and needs and caters to this, this construct of experts and folks in the museums that get to decide or other federal institutions that get to decide what is valid data. Um, there are some updates to the policy happening, so that's really exciting, but it also only focuses on small groups of indigenous populations, only federally recognized tribes. So state recognized tribes, non-recognized tribes, international tribes, um, or even folks in Guam uh, that are uh, being oppressed by the imperial borders and regime of the United States, those indigenous populations do not classify under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. There's also a small pocket of items that are qualified to be um, repatriated. Anything outside of these four little bullet points that you see here, don't get repatriated back. So our work um, at the museum is we follow NAGPRA, um, but we see NAGPRA as the floor. It is not the ceiling that like caps our work, it's the floor that we build off of. And so we really wanted to see and sit in a space through those working groups to see how do we build from the floor and keep building up? What is our responsibility as an organization committed to decolonizing initiatives? What has indigenous populations been asking us across the world to do? Give back their resources, give back their ancestors. That's where this policy came in. 
I love this policy. It was a very collective long process. So it's the colonial pathways policy. Um, a synopsis of this, and you can find it online. I believe there's going to be a link uh, on y'all's platform too. Uh, but what this says is anything in our cultural resources holdings. So, and anybody in our cultural resources holding. So that's all of the 75,000 ethnographic items, any of the, the um, archival material, data, the ancestors, um, if they came to us through a colonial pathway, um, they need to go home if the community wants it home. And so a lot of folks ask, uh, what's a colonial pathway? And so this is how the policy uh, defines colonial pathways. Talks about uh, areas of inequitable trade, armed conflict, military oppression, um, also policies that restrict uh, religious rights where folks were maybe having to trade some of their cultural resources in order to just be able to buy food. Um, also, one of my favorite uh, pieces of this is this bottom piece here. Um, we recognize that pathways go both ways. It's not just into the museum, but it's out of the museum. Uh, and so thinking about this with this last piece is if holding on to a cultural resource, even if we bought it completely legitimately from the artist or we had a contract, but if we held on to this cultural resource and the community says that they need it back, that would be a colonial practice because we would be owning that cultural resource and we would be creating a barrier and inhibiting um, that cultural knowledge, that um, uh, intellectual property back into the community and we would be claiming it as our own. And so really recognizing that um, trust is earned and that needs to be repatriated back because that is a pathway out um, and that would be a colonial practice if we weren't building with the community and hearing their wants and needs. An example. So this is Ambassador Ole Sankale from the Maasai tribe. Um, Ambassador Ole uh, came to us and he was more interested in talking at the time about some of administration practices and thinking about partnering because they were building a cultural center um, in Kenya. And we had cultural resources um, that we steward from his communities or we thought was from his communities. Uh, and so we uh, asked if he wanted to, it was interested in doing a consultation. Uh, during the consultation process, we're really intentional. We don't take notes unless we have consent. Consent is at the heart of our work. Um, if, if we don't have consent, then that is data that is shared, but shouldn't be recorded. And so we're always asking, can we take notes? Can this be added to our um, cultural resource practices? Can it be added to our archives? Um, during that time, he looked at few, a few of the arrows, identified some of the arrows had poison on them that we didn't necessarily know. He also found a gathering of cultural resources that were labeled Maasai, but were not Maasai. Uh, we're actually of a community, a neighboring community. And so recognizing we we're not the experts uh, and folks were not the experts who were before us of the indigenous populations. Uh, and then if you see down here, there is a sphere right here. It's about seven and a half feet long. Uh, and so during this time, we were like, would you like the cultural resources back? We have its policy, our colonial pathways policy says that if you want them and you all need them, um, you can have them. And we'll pay for the repatriation because we have a line item in our budget for that. Uh, and he kept saying no. Uh, and so we were like, okay, if you do not want these cultural resources back, what can we do to support you? And he's like, well, I have a list of the cultural resources that we do need, the items that we want. Maybe you could leverage your networks in order to get them back to us. So we have that. The other thing he asked, he's like, if you're gonna keep these items, the least you could do is take care of them properly. Uh, and we were like, what? And <laughs> the cultural resources team were like, what? Um, and this is our, I love our director of cultural resources. She's wonderful. This is Kara Vetter. Uh, and she's very, very structured, 
just, you know, wonderful cultural resources person. It was like, let me tell you all the ways that we're like taking care of it, talking about some of the chemicals, the acid-free boxes that we're keeping it in. And he was like, no, he was like, look at it. And if you look at it, right, there's all of this rust on the metal. And he was like, it's dying. It's falling apart. You're not taking care of it properly. So uh, and traditionally thinking about this uh, process within cultural resources, we would say, we know what we're doing. We know how we're taking care of the cultural resources. But because of our policies, our cultural resource management policies and our guiding principles is recognizing indigenous people know and are the authorities around their cultural resources, how to care for them, their history, all of these pieces. And so we asked, how do we take care of it? Um, and he said, you need to go to a butcher uh, and get animal fat uh, and to clean it with animal fat so many different times, like a year and told us the process. Uh, and so that's what we did. Kara uh, went to a butcher, got sheep fat, and then now cleans it. Uh, and I think she's got it scheduled on her calendar. But what is really beautiful is it doesn't look like this anymore. It is shiny uh, and wonderful. And she said, Kara tells this really wonderful story how when she was cleaning it, that she felt the cultural resource take a breath of fresh air, like it was connected to its community, connected to its ancestors, and that it came back to life, right? That it was living again. And I think that that's really beautiful is recognizing communities are experts, right? Us stepping back, us as museum folks, that it's not about us, uh, checking our ego, that it's the indigenous peoples, it's their belongings, it's their connections to their past, their present, and their future generations, right? Uh, and so now we have um, the animal fat in a fridge locked up in cultural resources so no critters can use it. We also recognize we are in a hundred year old building y'all. Like it's like built in 1915. And so we do the best that we can to find some balance from massive amounts of critters being in this space and wanting to be in this space in a hundred plus year old building with limited temperature control and meeting the wants and needs of indigenous communities. Um, and so we always are trying to find ways to make sure that we are being as safe as possible and also um, in alignment with the community's requests. So I'm gonna move into marketing next. Um, and I know that's a big jump from cultural resources to marketing, uh, but this is an older photo back when we were the Museum of Man. Uh, we just recently switched to the Museum of Us um, because the name held a lot of colonial baggage. Also like, recognizes this construct of the binary, holds up the patriarchy, and just really thinking about what that looks like in terms of how it creates barriers of access. So anyways, um, many times, some of the replication of colonial harm uh, is in the images that we produce. It's in the ways that we talk about um, the exhibits, it's in the ways that we promote and market them, it's asking people to come in. And if you look at the one on the left, um, it screams colonization, right? Uh, it has the Columbus boat in the middle, it screams um, like discovery, you even see the way that, see what's inside, but you see cannibals at the very top, really exoticizing these constructs of cannibals. And if you don't know what the exhibit is about, what are you thinking it's about? What is it implying that it's about? We also had a very long conversation, we as in the Department of Decolonizing Initiatives around um, what is this, like if I were to walk by as an indigenous person, what does this sign, how would it make me feel? Um, would it create an isolation point? Because it doesn't say, what you're thinking it says or what the exhibit says inside. Um, we also talk about how, or talked about, excuse me, how for many indigenous, black indigenous communities of color, the shoreline is a point of pain. It is a point of colonization. It is where black indigenous bodies were taken and stolen from their hand, hand um, stolen from their home and their families, kidnapped, moved into enslavement, um, abused and like acts of genocide happened at that point. 
Even today, we think about the shoreline. Who has power and privilege and profit to be able to be on the shorelines and to live on the shorelines and the displacement of the communities that that is the original homeland? And then also talking about what that looks like um, around who uh, has now started to claim uh, the like surfing. What is surfing culture, especially in San Diego? What is the predominant populace of the folks who are the ones out on the water um, and recognizing surfing is an indigenous uh, practice, right? And so the next one to the right where it says final, it's not perfect <laughs> by any means. It still recognizes and creates some of the questions and these spaces, but it is better. And so a lot of the work is we're doing better. We're moving. We're finding points of compromise, uh, finding points of collaboration. Um, it's not as bad as the other one. It is a. It was a. It's a really nice middle point for us to continue to build from. And so you can see. I think it's called a schooner. I'm not a boat person. Uh, but I think that's what it was called, or the boat is called. And so you have the schooner, they've changed the shoreline so it looks a little bit different. Even changing the words creates a completely different feel for the signage. Let's see. Oh, there we go. So I know that this sign is really tiny. Um, I'm gonna show a close up. no worries. Next slide, I promise. But I wanted to show you it in full scope. Uh, and this is our uh, recent activity or recent practice of decolonizing initiatives in action. Um, these signs, this sign is really trying to show folks what's happening behind the scenes. Decolonial work takes time. It doesn't just happen on a weekend, right? Because it's consultation, it's practice with indigenous communities. And many times our folks trust museums because society is given power as we are knowledge keepers and the authorities right and so we want to make sure we're being transparent about the work happening behind the scenes and the work happening in the future and that's what you see here so the close-up and so just to point out some basic spaces that you see in this first area it's really recognizing in our Maya exhibit the harm that we've caused that Maya peoples are here today and yet this exhibit that we have on display doesn't say that. It's really an archaic exhibit and it's harmful. It, it paints people as people of the past, especially indigenous people, Maya peoples, and it's from a one-sided Euro-American um, cis perspective. Also recognizing that our work is to do better um, and that we uh, had played a role in the way that this uh, was perpetrated, but also making sure that we're recognizing um, that we're working to redress the harm by consultation. And so that's where you see the bottom part um, is our commitment. So this is the commitment um, that we have made to the Maya community consultants that we're working with, but we wanna make sure that the general public also sees that this is the commitment that we have made. Uh, so that way we're being accountable, not just to our consultants behind the scenes, or what feels like behind the scenes, but to our population, to our community, to the folks coming in every day buying admissions, both domestically and international. Because in the park, Balboa Park, which Balboa is also a colonizer, um, they uh, we have a wide variety of people from all over the world that come into and pay admission and come in to see the museum. And so I'm going to in the next picture. We're right now in phase three of the process. Uh, phase one was consultation and removing cultural resources that were on display. Phase two uh, was taking all of the old pieces um, in terms of like the old stucco that was on the wall and like the old uh, display cases down and doing a lot of construction. 
And then now we've done install. We're working with um, a um, an artist who's going to put it, putting a new mural up. We're also working with the community to draft um, new text panels that's based on the themes that they want uh, to be represented, not the themes that the old um, researcher wanted to have it. And that's, this is where you see the sign. This sign has been present through the entire process. And we also have signage that's placed here and new signage placed here to continue to remind people that we are in the midst of this process and this is the phase that we're in. So moving into digital offerings, um, and this will be the last tangible example that I'll show you all. Um, and then we'll move into a little bit of reflection. But these are some of the pieces that uh, while we were in shutdown uh, for the pandemic, uh, we leaned into. We pull from data that folks have been asking us for years to do, um, especially thinking about the colonial legacy of the museum's facade um, and really leaning into our decolonizing principles. So we did three Smithsonian learning labs with um, three interns from the Smithsonian institutes that were in my department, gave them the guiding principles and said, what does that fit with your interest? Where do you think we should lean in? And these were the three exhibits that they pulled uh, from their passion, but also honoring the space of our decolonizing initiatives, guiding principles and the fluidity of that space. We also have this one here that's built from a new exhibit that's going up um, that's in Spanish too. Um, this is the one, the colonial legacy one, that's Google Arts and Culture that I'm going to talk about. Uh, so this is the museum facade. This um, really leaned into the space of pushing what Google Arts and Culture is and how uh, many times uh, we thought uh, Google Arts and Culture was supposed to be. What we've seen in the past is that it typically had uh, and held the space of here's a really beautiful object. Let's look at all the objects and let's tell you about the objects as a museum. That's not what we stand for. Um, we are OK of putting an object on display if we have the consent of the community. But we've made a commitment um, because of our past of not putting and putting everything on display without consent that if we don't have that then we're not we're not going to wait or we're going to wait excuse me we're not going to put it on display and so we pushed google arts and culture to say you know this is what we would like to do um, this is what we stand for these are our values and this is our commitment to indigenous communities and google said okay they said okay let's see what you put together which is really wonderful to hear and exciting on my part because we got to have a conversation around decolonization with google and hear them get excited about it too. And so this is what you see in this facade, right? Or in this exhibit. It talks about where we are. It also talks about our colonial legacy as a museum. Accountability and truth telling is like in the first three slides. It recognizes that museums um, and us specifically largely silenced indigenous populations and were um, a catalyst for uh, uplifting and facilitating indigenous erasure, right? Especially with indigenous peoples and peoples throughout the Americas when we think about the impact that these non-colonizers on our facade had. Um, and also recognizing how we've reinforced colonial narratives by not talking about this, by only talking about it through one perspective and only talking about it as if that was the only truth, right? And uplifting and saying that they were these amazing people and they developed and not talking about the fact that the genocide, the kidnap, the torture, the enslavement that these men did um, and the policies that they put in place in order to make that possible. So we also then um, talk about how even the architecture um, and the architect was very much intentional about creating it to look like Spanish colonial um, 
like uh, theme, uh, but then also recognizing how that connects to the Catholic Church and the Doctrine Discovery, which connects to colonials, uh, colonization throughout the Americas and it, in other areas as well. Um, we don't go into depth about the Doctrine of Discovery, but we do give resources and this hyperlink that's here for folks to continue to learn more about the Doctrine of Discovery. Uh, and then it's a long exhibit, but it's important, right? We wanna talk about each of them and it dives into each of the nine people, the nine men, the nine colonizers that are on the facade and how their lives, although some of them are almost a hundred years apart, intertwined, recognizing that maybe one dude just like, if we think about right here, this man, um, he was a map maker and he kept journals of indigenous populations all throughout the coast, the Pacific coast. Um, his maps and journals were used in order for Junipero Serra to be successful in his work of missionaries and enslavement and um, abuse towards indigenous people. His maps and charts were also used by the conquistadors in order to continue to um, move across the area. And so recognizing that it's more than just a map and chart maker, that he created a foundation for colonization to continue to happen um, and access points for colonizers. And so this is another example. When we look at um, uh, Cabrillo, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, uh, and what does that look like in terms of these points, triangulating the points, right? Where we look at national monuments in San Diego, where's the um, Cabrillo National Monument owned by the federal government. If people pay like 30 bucks to go into this space and look at this piece. Um, and then the bridge that you have to cross over, it's called Cabrillo Bridge, and you cross over it to get to the museum. People walk across this bridge every day, still named Cabrillo Bridge. Our facade, this point um, on our shoreline, uh, the Pacific shoreline in uh, Southern California, where they say that Cabrillo discovered the Kumeyaay peoples. Kumeyaay peoples were always here, uh, and he was actually not the first person to connect with uh, Kumeyaay peoples, not the first Spanish person, not the first conquistador to connect with Kumeyaay peoples. Kumeyaay peoples moved all the way down into um, Central America, were actively trading, knew about Spanish populations, knew about the Spanish um, colonizers way before Cabrillo came into the picture. And then also recognizing um, even our highways uh, are named. This is a Highway 163 now, uh, but right up until uh, not too long ago, a few decades ago, it was called um, Cabrillo National Highway. So a lot of our digital pieces, um, all of those digital exhibits, a lot of our work in the museum uh, end and begin with reflection, critical reflection of who we are as a museum, what this work looks like, who we are as people who are in the museum field, in society, because it's it's enormous, right? The work is enormous. Um, and we also make sure reflection is a part of our digital pieces. And so this is some of the examples of the questions I sit with, the questions that we sit with as a team within our museum. And I wanted to offer these to you all as well. Maybe some of these would be useful for you all. Take what you can, take what you would like, uh, but also fully recognizing that um, it's easy to be overwhelmed with the enormity of how deeply embedded colonization is in our lives, in our society at large. It's a lot, right? Um, and sometimes it feels like you're in the middle of an ocean with no paddles. Uh, colonization impacts populations differently. And this impact is constantly changing due to intergenerational shifts, right? Societal pressures, um, it moves and changes and morphs because it's still happening to maintain power. 
decolonial practices really need to be adaptive to this, right? And continue to change as the impacts of colonization consistently happen. Um, and really thinking about what that looks like and how it looks like and it manifests differently in different places based on the wants and needs of different communities. And so I've mentioned frequently <laughs> that decolonization uh, is a process. It's fluid, right? Nonlinear, malleable. Um, and when I think about uh, the transformative effect of decolonization, I think about it in relationship to water, right? Water is malleable, right? It adapts to its surroundings and meets the needs of the environment. Over time, water can change an entire ecology of a place. Water carves valleys, moves mountains, and brings back life. Water connects us to our ancestors and our future generations. Even a single drop of water um, that consistently hits the surface will eventually break through a rock, create an opening, and grow into a passageway. And so really, like water, one person, um, excuse me, one person, um, you know, continuing to do this work um, can make a difference, right? Working towards decolonizing in the field can make a difference, can create passageways for present and future generations. Um, similarly, oops, when we work together, uh, collectively, we move mountains and change the ecology of the museum field. We change these mountains of colonization, these slow moving entities that don't want to move many times, or maybe they do, but they're so stuck in what's considered best practices. And this is how we've always done it. And so really thinking about how we, it's a collective process. How do we work together? Um, you know, we are water and when we work together, we can affect transformative decolonial change. And so I'm gonna leave y'all with that hope that's helpful. That's how I operate. That's what keeps me up at night, but also keeps me moving. Um, and here's my contact. Please feel welcome to reach out to me if you have any questions or just want to vent or ask questions. That's also my dog. I don't know if y'all and his best friend, Eleanor the chicken. So thank you. Thank you, Brandy. That was incredible. Um, I think we have, I, I appreciate your work and your leadership, really great thought provoking examples. We're starting to, there's a question in the chat already, and I would love to open it up. I know we just have till noon today, but if you if you didn't mind um, hanging around to answer a couple of questions, that would be great. I might encourage people, if you have a question, no need to write it in an entirety in the chat, but maybe just indicate that you have a question, and then I can go down um, and, and call upon you, and you can ask your question live. So. Anissa Paulson, I see you have a question here. Do you mind unmiking and just asking it directly? Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, can you hear me? Yes, perfect. Okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, I just also wrote in the chat uh, that if this was live and we could clap, I would be giving a standing ovation because that was really phenomenal. Thank you so much for all that wisdom that you imparted on us and thanks for just sharing your experience and giving us a lot of inspiration to think about. Um, uh, so I guess my question, um, I hopefully I'm gonna articulate it properly. <laughs> I was hoping Tanya would do that on my behalf, but <laughs> she made me unmute. Um, so I was just curious if uh, how your museum decides who is the designated authority for consultations and consent from indigenous communities. Um, I no longer work in a museum, but from what I understand, sometimes it can be quite difficult to determine which person or persons from a particular community may have the authority 
to determine what happens with certain cultural resources. So I was just wondering if you had advice or experience with that. Thank you. Thank you. And also thank you for the kind words. Y'all are gonna and in the chat, y'all are gonna make me cry. I, I have a tender heart, so I really appreciate you all and the words of affirmation. Thank you. Um, and the question. So I think your question is it's it is real. Uh, it is a real challenge that I think folks continue to ask throughout the museum field. And I also think it's a question that people use as this tool to not do the work or to be like frozen in fear of doing the work because this this construct this colonial construct of it has to be perfect right and there's just one or there's just a, and so really sitting in a space of doing the best we can um, and it depends on the community i think is really the answer and so living in a space um and a society a museum that loves binaries <laughs> like we really got to lean into that uncomfortable space uh and the space of not being the experts too and so one of the things that we recognize is when we think about the U.S. colonial imperial borders, we have the sovereign nations. Um, and I think that this applies in other communities too, right? There's tribal governances. Um, and so we work with the elected tribal governances and it's either like the tribal historical preservation office or sometimes they have committees like Kumeyaay peoples. They have several committees because they have 12 bands and the bands elect people who are the representative of the bands into these committees, like the Heritage Preservation Committee or the Cultural Resources Committee. And we do work directly with them and they decide, like they're the ones that worked with us to create access policies and to decide what gets repatriated back first. Now, when it goes outside of communities um, who don't have that structure, uh, when I think about like, for example, Maya communities, right? We're working with Maya community consultants. Um, it's, we, we Again, do the best we can. We worked with some of the folks in our in our regional area. Who are the Maya peoples that are in our area? Maya peoples in diaspora. What does it look like even a little bit larger? And then expanding out to community members maybe that they know within their network to bring into the consultation process. We have five Maya consultants. Um, and we also really sit in a space of, and they sit in a space is that they don't speak for all Maya peoples, but we're doing, they're doing the best that they can to be do the best for Maya peoples. So when we talk now with them about repatriation, um, we're sitting in a space of what does it mean to repatriate back to some of the original homelands when there's Maya peoples in diaspora all over the world. Like three of our consultants are international, one's in New Zealand, one's in Canada, one's in like Amsterdam, right? And so that is, we honor that and recognize that's a product of colonization. It's also a product of migration too. And so we're thinking about what does it mean as a group to have spaces that um, and have repatriation that holds uh, uh, space and conversation to repatriate to communities and diaspora because that's a piece of their home. And from where they sit, many of these objects are also in diaspora. Their relatives, right, are in diaspora. And so thinking about how does that work? Do they have a cultural center? Do we repatriate it back to the cultural center? Is it do they want us to steward it? And we have an access policy where it's completely open to people of Maya descent. And so there's no one answer. Um, when we worked with the Maasai community, it was the ambassador that they sent in. Um, if we work with other communities, sometimes it's a gathering of culture bearers that have approached us and we're doing, we're working with them to see kind of what are their wants and needs. Um, we're not gonna be able to ever speak to everyone um, and saying we can't speak to these five people because we don't know if they're the official authorities, and we can't repatriate it, 
is I feel sometimes another way for us to continue to hold on to the item. I'm sorry, that's not a straight answer, but I just don't know if there's a straight answer for this kind of work. That's a great answer. Thank you. Great. And then it also, um, we can also, if you raise your hand, so I'm glad you're seeing all the love there, Brandy, so much. Um, people are getting so much out of, of what you've shared with us today, uh, as am I. So if people are raising their hands, I'm not seeing um, uh, people with raised hands, but if you want to put something in the chat to raise your hand, please do. I love questions and conversation. So if y'all have questions, please, um, please ask questions. I may not be able to answer them. I'm not an expert, um, but even just having like a conversation around what, like what keeps me up at night, what keeps you up at night and how we're handling that may help also in your light journey to decolonize um, the pillars of colonialism. I might just ask a question around audience. Like, it seems like you've done some really amazing transformative change um, and working in new ways with community. And I imagine that also resulted in a little bit of a shift about who who is engaging with the organization and opening up to new to audiences. Are you able to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, and I think so. Uh, Sebastian, I think you're on deck um, oh. with your hands too. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yes. Hello. Hey, if you are okay, could um, if I could answer Tanya's question and then come back to you, Sebastian, if that's okay? Please, yes. Okay, thank you. Um, so in the context of audience and audience shift, there's also usually within that question is like, what about the funders? People were mad. What'd you do with your board? It's wild to think you're bored, right? And that's a shift also in your audience, these controlling entities. Um, and so, yeah, it switched a little bit, but the museum, you said that we, you know, we, like explore the human connection while sparking and imagine of all of these really beautiful mission statements that museums have, but who are they really serving? Even though they say they serve everyone, it's typically a certain type of everyone, right? And it's, it's typically a way of replicating white supremacy. Who are the executive directors? Who's in charge? Who's the, what are the cultural dynamics? Um, and just in terms of just all of the demographics of your board members. And so we did um, create some folks who were not happy and decided to move on our, their way. But we didn't, when we embarked on this work, and even now when we embark on this work, it's not get on the train or it, the train doesn't exist in your world or you don't exist to us. It's really sitting in a space of how can we create entry points, access points of meeting people where they are on their journey, and then also creating tool sets, thinking about like these, the guiding principles. How can we make sure that we're talking about these examples and the importance of this work to help bring people into the fold to see why this is. It's more than us being this construct of revisionist history. It's about, I'm not trying to revise anything. Like that's not my job. I don't need to revise anything. What I need to do is to have all truths represented. I need to us for us to be accountable to the colonial harm in order for us to continue to move forward and build trust, right? Because all the truths were never there. And so that shift actually, instead of isolating people, grew our population, um, grew our target audience, um, has like increased the amount of students, increased our granting. Um, people are like, we're never gonna be able to fund this. Y'all, we're funding it because we're transparent in our grants. We also, our entire board loves this work, which is amazing. Like the fact that we can sit in the board votes for that policy to repatriation, like repatriate items for all of the items and they voted unanimously for it, is beautiful. I've got, we're working on it, uh, finalizing our decolonizing initiative strategic action plan. And even if someone doesn't agree with one space, 
we don't sit and say, okay, well, you know, that doesn't matter. We talk it out. Why don't you agree with it? Let's unpack perhaps some of the pieces of colonial threads. Um, and we see people really being, they start taking ownership. They take ownership in their growth. They take ownership in the museum and then also continue to talk about it outside of the museum world. I, so it's, I don't think that it was, it wasn't like a mass exodus of our previous target audience. It grew our target audience. Although we do have trolls, and I think that that's just, you know, someone that loves to like leave really mean comments and <laughs> call names. And that's just, I think, going to be a fact is you're not everyone's always going to be happy and change is hard. Um, and they don't always like to hear that perhaps some of their history is, a, you know, or they built their entire professional career as an archaeologist in the 80s and you oppressed indigenous populations and harmed us. Um, and now that you know, how do we do better together, right? How do we redress that harm? Um, how do we make sure we're not doing it again for future generations? Tanya, did that answer your question? Yes, absolutely, okay. thank you. And so after Sebastian too, we just, I have one more that's coming through the chat too, just so you know. Thank you, Sebastian. Great, hello, Brandy. Um, yeah, my name is uh, Sebastian. I'm talking to you from the unceded traditional territory of the Tsleil-Waututh in British Columbia, uh, Canada, or what we now call British Columbia. Um, yeah, I was hoping to ask for, I just guess, um, your vision or what your understanding might be on uh, a, a decolonizing uh, a more decolonized future and what our structures might look like. Uh, I worked um, with Indigenous organizations for uh, quite some time, and right now I'm working at a, a gallery uh, in uh, BC. And there's a really visual uh, gauge of colonization, right? You can see the process ongoing and happening. So moving forward, um, you know, with decolonizing practice and involving Indigenous communities um, so their voices can be heard. Uh, you know, my, uh, one of my dreams is that, you know, the doctrine of discovery is rejected and, um, you know, Canadian sovereignty is given to, you know, Indigenous um, tribal councils and uh, we are no longer a commonwealth country, but I just wanted to uh, pick your brain and see what uh, your visions for the future are for uh, you know practice and uh, and just a, a happier world. Thank you for asking that. I and I appreciate also even the context and the work you're doing in the community. Thank you. I I. I don't know the area well, but I can't imagine it's easy, right? I mean, being in the field and just, just even just navigating the pandemic and navigating all of the other variables that we have, even outside of the colonial regime, right? Um, so thank you. Um, when I think, so a couple of things. When I think about it in terms of uh, a decolonial future for museums, um, non-Indigenous museums, I. I think it needs to be more than a performative statement. It needs to be more than a public program. It needs to be more than a webinar. It needs to be more than a theme for, you know, your conference or anything like that. Not that this is, but like I've seen it. It's a hot word right now, right? Like we see it happening, especially during the pandemic. I was busier in the pandemic and the pandemic still happening, but early on in a lot of places because it became a theme, just like equity, right? Equity was a theme, equality, thinking about like diversity, 
And so really recognizing that this is this is a process. This is not just a word that you put in the grant in order to get a, get funding for this year. Um, and so I'd, that's really where I see us moving. I would like to see us moving as a field and it being more than also is, is it's a priority, right? It is a part of your physical year. It is a part of your budgeting system. It is a part of your mission statement. It's a part of the ethos of consultations development. It's what you think about when you're developing text panels. For me, it's what I think about when I go into an aquarium, when I go into a botanical garden, right? It's like, look at the, like these points of colonialism. I'm a big hit at dinner parties, y'all. So just so you know. Um, but so I see that, right? It's like making a priority, leaning in, and also checking egos um, and more policies, repatriation. And I, I really commend um, BCMA too, because like, I think you all issued and the work that um, Canada's doing around repatriation, like, yes, let's give items back. Um, when I think about indigenous peoples internationally, domestically, I think about our museums, I'm not the expert, y'all. Like indigenous peoples, we are the experts in our decolonial, like decolonial process. We know the ways in which that colonization continue to impact us. And so, what I may think is important may not be important to y'all. And that is real and legitimate. And because you are the expert, and so, what can I do to foster that? What can we do to foster like the, the shifts that you need? My area of concern and caution that I say and I see in spaces like um, is how when we think about museums we think about museums in a construct of colonialism we do a carbon cut copy of a colonial museum and we put some we put maybe we put like lakota language or we put um chickasaw language in there but it still looks if you took that away it still would look like your standard colonial museum and so i, I really would encourage us to lean into what would our museums look like how do we shift this common structure of what a museum is um, or what this colonial museum is. Same thing I think about, I'm, I'm doing some work in Saudi Arabia and recognizing indigenous Saudi Arabia, like that's indigenous land. Those are indigenous peoples. And so what does decolonial practice look like for them? How is the Western colonial paradigm coming in and bridging that space, right? And so what would the museums look like if, if they continue to think of their indigenous futurism to push back and be anti-colonial to like the Western influences, but then also think growing from there. So I think is that space is to really kind of figure out what that looks like and like move through. Um, and then I think in terms of larger scope, I really would love to see kind of what does it look like for us not to get stuck and this is how it has to be because it needs to continue to change because colonization and colonial power, they don't wanna lose power. Um, and so what, how do we move? The other thing that I would say is I would love to see like decolonizing initiatives take hold on UNESCO. That is one of my goals is like, what do we do to push? Cause UNESCO has like some deep bedded colonization, right? Just like museums. Uh, and yet they are working around cultural institutions and cultural sites, cultural heritage sites, museums, education spaces in all of these areas. Like what do we do to get UNESCO to start integrating decolonial practices? Um, more than just performative statements, more than just a conference with indigenous people. So that's my hope. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it was really great talking to you, Brandy, and thank you for uh, all the material uh, that you shared with us today. That's great. Brandy, I think we have time just for the one last question, but we 
Um, maybe we can also um, follow up. It looks like if you need time to reflect, um, people can reach out to you directly um, as well, which is very generous of you. That's great. But one last question from um, Alana Firedancer from Kelowna Museums. And she's really interested in uh, recommended resources for museum decolonizing practices. So I don't know if you want to say a few words and then we can follow up with more info as well as needed. Yeah, and um, and I think if there, I don't know in terms of, I think we had talked a little bit about extra time. I have some extra time. It just, I don't, I don't have an hour, but I have some extra time if uh, if folks want to stay or to be able to answer the other two questions too. But that's up to y'all as as organizers. Um, I think the first resource I always mention to people is uh, looking around decolonizing practices and that I make our interns read, I make our new um, board members read is Amy Lone Tree's Decolonizing Museums. Um, that is That was foundational in getting our work started at the Museum of Us. That was foundational in getting policies, getting words, repatriation. That's really the start is that introduction chapter lays out colonialism, lays out legacies of colonialism in museums, and then to provide some tangible examples of some museums doing it too. Um, so I think that that is a really powerful book. Um, she's wonderful, brilliant human being. Um, and I also think kind of what does it mean in terms of um, connecting with, like on our website, you're welcome to have the resources that we developed. Um, and then even just thinking about reaching out, I think uh, other resources that are not necessarily a book, uh, there are several that happened within the last year of like different podcasts and um, YouTube videos around like indigenous people talking about what decolonizing museums looks like maybe for, like, for them. Please reach out to me. Um, me and my team were, were working recently, not that you wanna read the stuff that we write, uh, but we are working on trying to write as practitioners to show more tangible examples and like how we work in cultural resources or what it looks like around education curricula. And so we would love, we could share those with you if that would be helpful or even just sharing some of our like access policies too. Um, yeah, and I know that's not a lot, but, um, and I can always think through a few more and just give some other different points um, and share them with BCMA too. Fantastic. Thank you. If some of you do have to go, um, thank you so much for being here. Um, and we do thank, thank you, Brandy, for offering if there are some additional questions. I didn't see anything immediately pending in the chat, but maybe let me just look again. Okay. Oh, great. Check your, yeah. Excellent examples, so inspiring. Oh, looks like there's one coming in. What are some of the ways that we can follow up on that work? So too often exhibits that feature decolonial truthful narratives are limited to being temporary exhibitions with uh, feature programming. What are some ways that we can follow up on this work even when it's time to change the display? So I'm not sure in terms of like in temporary exhibits feature programming. So I think maintaining contact um, being is, is really important, right? Is that relationship building is more than just that extractive space. Um, I think is continuing to be um, and have an accountability report, right? Like being a, as an organization, why are we not being accountable to what we've said? 
what we were able to accomplish and what we we didn't get to accomplish. And maybe we can build for that for the next time. But being honest about those challenges and why and what didn't get addressed, I think is a really valuable way uh, to be able to continue to follow up on it and then to connect, right? Like when we're working an example with the Maya cultural, uh, uh, excuse me, Maya consultants that we have and they're working with cultural resources. They, in our consultations, our purpose was for reframing the exhibit so that it's not oppressive anymore, but making sure that we are hearing what they're also saying around, they want an access policy. They want to get education material. Granted, my grant is this big and my time capacity, not a whole lot either, because it's just me and my other and teams and cultural resources and education doing the work. But I can't necessarily achieve that right now but I can work to get grant funding right now for later and not just let that die in our notes uh, because we didn't ask them for that. They asked us for that. And so that means that there's a life longer than just this piece that we're asking them to partner with us. There's one other question in terms of why I think Jennifer Pentel, and I don't know if you're still here, um, and I'm sorry if I didn't mispronounce your name, around um, how do we, why do we use the word museum? Is this not a colonial term? Y'all. I hear you <laughs> and, and I have this conversation with our um, our administration, our executive management team. We've had this conversation of uh, with the um, the board of trustees are like, why don't we become an institute or why don't we become a cultural center? I'm really strong that we need to stay a museum, right? It's not that we just because of that term, we're we're working to make sure that museums are not oppressive for indigenous populations, for black populations. We're not changing the name. Granted, we're evolving and we're changing or addressing colonial harm, but it's still a museum. And yes, it's colonial. And the institution, I don't even it's it's an inherently colonial space. I don't know if we can ever decolonize. I know we can start decolonizing. Uh, but I have hope that maybe we'll get to that part. But I still know that even as an institution like us, white supremacy is still there. Like I'm still the only indigenous person in some meetings, right? Um, it's an organization still ran by a certain demographic of people. And so I feel really strongly that if we're going to change the field of museums so that it, like for people like me who didn't feel welcome in a museum up until I was, I don't know, 32, um working in museums going to museums and hating them even as like a younger person that if we're going to change the field we need to stay a museum and push museums to be better to decolonizing museums right um and not change into a cultural center or not change into an institute because that sets you in a different construct of field um and then you're are you working to decolonizing institutes are you working on decolonizing cultural centers and so i i think also okay if you decide to change your name, but where I sit in the work that I do with the Museum of Us is why I stayed firm on us staying a museum and not changing into a different subgroup of a field of nonprofits. Great, um, thank you. I'm getting an indication from my, my friends at BCMA, we have time for one more, and I have uh, Jane Lemke, um, who's gonna ask a question. Um, please un un feel free to unmute Jane. Hi. Hi, Brandy. Um, Hi. First of all, thank you. I heard you on CBC yesterday afternoon too, and it was really refreshing oh. to like turn on the radio and hear museums being discussed in the public discourse. So that was really wonderful. Um, I'm wondering if and you kind of alluded to this in your last answer. I'm wondering if you could just discuss your close team. So who is doing these pieces of policy and the frameworks you're talking about and what are their backgrounds? How did you get that team? How do you, 
remunerate that team? Like in terms of building capacity, how are you setting yourselves up to succeed from the internal workforce? Yeah. Um, so I wish, uh, and I'm like in, in a perfect world, I've had, I'd have my like department squad, right? Who are like, we like pulled all of the decolonial baddies from the world and like sit in our museum to really like suck a punch and change the, the space. Um, and um, we don't have that necessarily, but we're still, we're, we're developing or going into being decolonial baddies in, in our departments as a whole. And so the teams that work on these policies they're the teams that were there many of them some of them were there before we started the work the work has been going on and growing for about 10 years um and so it consists of our ceo micah parson who's a cis white man it consists of different board members who um, have a variety of different experiences some bipoc some black indigenous peoples of color some not some white archaeologists right um with different settings around what it looks like to be in the field and be museums and understanding and so we also have different staff right so in terms of my team under my purview right now um is education cultural resources and decolonizing initiatives and then education content or excuse me exhibit content development um but that doesn't mean that everyone's responsibility is to not sit and think about how do we change these practices or be in the, the question. So really the entire organization is essentially on a team, but when we go to develop policies like the colonial pathways policies, it was pulling from cultural resources and having those folks there. It was me, it was like five board members, our CEO, and sometimes even our development team so that we can help them grow. And so we have folks um, like myself or cultural resources who have really developed the knowledge of what decolonizing practices are, who have been working with indigenous communities for years. And then we have folks who are really new and they're passionate about it, but they don't have a clue what it is coming in off maybe the board or visitor experiences. And so we spend usually those first few sessions of restarting everyone's knowledge, setting the foundation. This is why we do the work, revisiting our colonial legacy. We can't move forward as a group if we don't continue to revisit the past on the way we've caused harm as an institution and as a field. That's been really valuable because it creates these on-ramps for folks that we talk like if there's this construct of like levels, right? A level 10 or a level seven or this like, right? Like we're at each at different starting points because we've worked with this for so long because it's a part of our skill set, our job, our passions. It's what we read at night. Um, and so, but recognizing not everybody has those access points or that option or, um, but they do have the harder they want to engage. And so it's how do we build their knowledge and skill set up? Because if we're gonna movement build, we can't just leave them behind and expect them to catch up. Um, at least that's how we approach it is we work to help them catch up and then we move as a whole. It's been really powerful to do it that way. I do wanna be really honest though that, um, what it happens is many times the emotional and physical labor is on our black indigenous and communities of color like y'all i cry a lot <laughs> so, to be real honest with you like i cry a lot um and sometimes we're having to sit when we talk about colonial legacy and we're cross-referencing um federal legislation that has like you know murdered my ancestors or made it um, illegal for us to practice our religious practice and then we're looking at how the museum was a conduit for that or like paid people to grave rob and we're having to talk to people who are not indigenous that never had the thought of think about this about why this is important that this space goes home 
or why this is a colonial vase and representation of colonization. So we usually in those sessions uh, to create policies, we create moments of space like where we can go walk in the park or um, just detach because that takes a lot out of us too. Um, and that is where we think about time as a colonial tool is integrating these spaces of time um, because it doesn't happen overnight. So it's not a direct answer. Um, when I go, when we go to hire anybody on our organization, our hiring practices, we have several questions. And, and if this is helpful, I hope it is. But we have questions around like, what is, how do you define colonization? Um, we have like, what does colonization mean um, in the, the context of education? If someone's being, we just hired an educator and asked that for the first round. In the second round of the interview, um, in most second round interviews, both our cultural resources or education, we ask this question around, um, how have you replicated or reproduced harm in your um, like colonial harm uh, in your work or personal life? What is an example? And so really recognizing that it's both reflecting as a society and ourselves that we're a part of it. And sometimes we do it and then we don't even realize it, right? And so hard questions, but also recognizing that that's the organizational culture is that we're sitting into, we want folks to know that this is important to us. And even if you don't have an answer for it, that this is like prepping you for the culture that you're coming into, that this is all of our work. Is that helpful, Jane? Oh yeah, uh, okay. very helpful, especially the last few bits. I mean, all of it was really interesting, including your uh, point about emotional work. Um, taking its toll, but the HR questions are really interesting in terms of a giant colonial cog that needs to adapt in the HR world. Thank you. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. I, I feel like we'll, we'll, I hope we keep the conversation going. This was such an incredible start. And, and thank you to everyone for being here and your excellent questions. Really appreciate it.